Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to the Fick Focus Podcast, Macro Matters Edition. My name is Ira Jersey. I'm the Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. With me today, we go across the pond to my colleague, Hugh Worthington, who is our European Rate Strategist. Hugh, thanks very much for coming back on Fick Focus. Thank you very much for having me. So we've been dropping our outlooks for the year 2023, and obviously central banks are still front and center. I mean, that's not that unusual, I guess, for uh, for rates markets generally. But um, th- but there seems to be at least a little bit of confusion as to um, what policy is going to be going forward. So here in the U.S., it looks like the Federal Reserve is going to start slowing down its uh, its its hikes. It's going to go from 50 basis points in December, probably in in our view 25 basis points here in January and um, in my view they're in calibration mode where basically we're very close to the end of, of its hiking cycle the question is will they hike another 25 50 or 75 basis points but somewhere in that range is where I think that they're going to go but but Hugh you know Europe is in a much different situation than the US is in 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 terms of its hiking cycle both by pace and also some of the risk factors that are going on. Can, can you talk a little bit about um, you know, your outlook and, and what you see from both the ECB and the Bank of England in terms of, of, their, um, of their monetary policy over the next three to six months? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, like you say, I think the ECB in particular is in a very different place probably than, uh, than the Fed and probably the Bank of England to some extent as well. Um, we actually had a bit of a surprisingly, surprisingly hawkish uh, ECB meeting back in December when I think a lot of people were expecting uh, Christine Lagarde to tell us that the pace of uh, rate hikes would start to slow pretty much, I suppose, like it's like we're expecting in the Fed, uh, to 25 basis points going forward. But she basically was, uh, was very adamant that actually 50 basis points was very much on the table going forward for, for, the, for the, uh, both the February and the March meetings. Um, <clears throat> now... I think what was driving that, um, I think in particular the, the ECB is one, one concerned that they are they are uh, a little bit behind the curve. You know, they basically started raising rates and, and what have you and tightening, you know, six or eight months after everybody else. But I think also there's, a, there's con- there are concerns over the level of wage growth that they're seeing in, in Europe. Um, the actual data for 2022 was showing wage growth over, the, over that year running at around twice the sort of the 20-year average. Um, but I think in particular, I think they're, they're concerned in, about what is in the pipeline. Um, there's a very interesting deal with IG Metall, which is a big engineering union in Germany, which basically was looking at, after bonuses are included, um, you know, payments, pay increases are around 7.5% for this year, and about 5.5% in 2024. Um, and a lot of people sort of benchmark themselves with this, so I think they are concerned that there's definitely inflation and wage growth in the pipeline uh, going forward. And actually they reiterated that in the economic bulletin which came out last week. So I think that's basically going to be probably continuing to drive the ECB and we're probably going to be looking at 50 basis points in uh, February and March and probably, you know, but then after that, slowing the pace of increases, but probably ending up, um, you know, with, with, a, with, a, with another hike or two after that, ending around around the middle of of, uh, of of 2023. With, with what with what type of terminal rate then, Hugh, will will the ECB be at? 
Well, at the moment we're looking at them, the deposit rates at 2%, so we're looking at around sort of 3, 3.5% probably. And a few, quite a few of the, uh, the recent speakers from ECB have been saying that they want to see rates in Europe pushed into restrictive territory. And I think, again, if, if you want to, 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 to slow down the, the unemployment market in particular, that, that's where we're going to have to go. And actually, I think recent data is actually showing that the you know, growth is not as coming off as fast as some people might have feared, and the, you know, the recent numbers have been um, you know, pretty uh, pretty optimistic. I'd also say that's probably true to the Bank of England, as and a lot of people were thinking the Bank of England would slow to 25 basis points in February, but actually wage growth data out in the UK this week was running around 6.4% for last month. You know, I guess, again, really not in, not consistent with getting inflation down to anywhere close to the sort of the 2% targets, right? You're talking about probably double that. At the, these sorts of levels of uh, inflation, so actually, I think the Bank of England won't slow to 25 basis points. I think they will, they will go another 50 in, in February. But I think after that, they, they they probably will slow down alongside the Fed, probably with with a 25 basis point move um, in in uh, in March, and they will probably top out at around four and a quarter. Although I think there are risks they could go to around the four and a half percent. Pushing higher than that for the bank is difficult because I think these financial stability people tell us basically everything implodes at around five percent. So. I think that does become a bit of a hard figure uh, for, um, for for the bank. So that's so it's interesting. So the the U.S. and the U.K. are are more similar situations. It sounds like for, in in your view than um, than the ECB and continental Europe. But so so then from a market perspective, when you're looking out at term markets, whether it's five year, ten year, then then obviously. You know, typically when central banks uh, reach their peak in uh, in their monetary policy tightening, the the next move is easing. Um, I, I you know the question is, and this is certainly true in the U.S. is that the market continues to price for cuts before the end of 2023. Fed speakers and and some others, and and including Anna Wong and our um, in our economics team, as well as as here in in uh, research and BI. Um, we don't think that the the Fed's going to hike throughout the, this entire year. Yet the market keeps on pricing for that. Um, so, so is that a similar situation in the UK? And and how much different do you think the ECB and what's going on in continental Europe can? Uh, how, how different can they be compared to the US and the UK? Oh yeah, I think I think it's a very similar situation actually. Um, I think effectively the market or the bond market and, and maybe the equity market. Although that's obviously not my. My subject, I think, are expecting some sort of capitulation from from the ECB in particular. Uh, you've got two-year um, bond yields trading around 2.4%. I suspect the average of uh, policy rates over the next year, next two years, is going to be probably north of 3% uh, in, in Europe, and it's probably a similar story story in, in the UK too. You know, two-year gilt yields are trading around 3.4%. So, you know, I think. Um, there is a definite risk. I think that that's not that's that's uh, that is not going to be uh, sustainable. I think we are going to see front-end yields, um, you know, edging higher as people realise that the ECB is going to keep hiking and is not going to be starting to cut as anything like as quickly as people hope. ECB in particular, I think, is also um, you know much much more hawkish on on inflation. I think you could you could make a big argument that the Bank of England is going to be ha- quite happy to tolerate. Um, you know, higher levels of inflation than, than the ECB would. So you, I, I could argue that maybe the, the bank could start to be uh, uh, more flexible on, on maybe in terms of, you know, reducing rates. But I think the ECB is basically be all, almost being effectively kidnapped by the, uh, the, the German elements of its, of its governing board. And they're going to push pretty hard to, I think, get those rates into restrictive territories um, and, uh, and, 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 and hold them there. So in terms of the longer term yields, uh, well, actually, the 10-year bond today has just dipped below 2%. It 
you know, I really don't think that's sustainable, especially if we're saying we get those two-year, uh, you know, bond yields going sort of 0.5, 0.75% higher. They'll probably drag the 10-year with them. The curve will probably stay, um, you know, pretty inverted though. So I don't, I don't think, you know, we're going to be looking at 10-year bond yields going as high as 3%, but, you know, certainly two and a half is, is, is easily seeable again in, in, the, in, in the relatively near future, I'd have thought. So and and obviously hiking is is you know paramount in, in the forefront of everyone's minds, but there's other um, monetary policy that's going on behind the scenes too, including quantitative tightening, you know, the runoff of balance sheets and the like. So talk a little bit about the um, you know the the non-traditional monetary policy and how that might affect the pricing in in some other um, in some other jurisdictions. So you had a piece out recently about um, you, you know how what might go on with peripheral spreads and and the like in, in certain jurisdictions. So talk a little bit about uh, about the knock-on effects that might happen to uh, to different markets. Yeah, sure. So so quantitative tightening um, well, in Europe is basically going to take the form initially of just not rolling. Uh, what is basically regular, regularly held asset purchase program QE bonds as they come to you. And initially, it'll be about half of the bonds won't be rolled. So, and that's going to be reviewed probably around sort of June time. And I suspect that at some point that, that will be increased to all of them not being rolled. But that obviously will eff effectively increases the net issuance that's going on in Europe. And there are some really big numbers of net issuance that we're looking at. Um, Roughly speaking, you look at the official plans that are already out there. The only country that doesn't give you an official target is, is Italy. But basically, the official plans that are out so far, everybody's got very similar levels of issuance to what we saw last year in net terms, if not more. So we're talking about 1.3 trillion in gross. That, that equates to about over 500 billion euros of net bond issuance. Chuck in a bit of net bill issuance, we're up to over 600 billion of net debt supply. And that's you know much, much higher than anything we've seen really even over the last 10 years. But add in quantitative tightening, as I was saying, if they do roughly don't roll half of the bonds of regular QE as they fall due, and then increase it to all of the bonds at, uh, in the second half of the year, that adds something like um, 120 billion to, uh, to, to, the, to, the, to the debt pile. So you're talking about possibly over 700 billion euros of, of, um, of new buyers of debt would have to be found this year. And that, to give you some sort of idea, that roughly undoes all the excess of QE over net issuance that we've seen over the last seven years. So that's an extremely demanding target. Yeah, and that, that's really interesting, Hugh, because I, I would just say that in the U.S. We, we're in a slightly different situation, right? So even though um, in Europe you're going to have very significant net debt issuance, in the U.S. it's actually falling. So yes, we still have a deficit in the U.S. and we're still going to have to find buyers for, for new bonds, but that deficit is going to be significantly smaller than it was in 2021 and 2022, um, in particular with, uh, with, with tax receipts still running at a very good uh, a very decent pace right now. Um, so it's very possible that we could see much different um, issuance dynamics in Europe compared to the compared to the US. And I think that that's could be interesting from a relative value standpoint as well. Like, you know, where is there maybe a little bit more impetus for the US to rally vis-a-vis -vis Europe in a, um, you know, just because of the supply situation? Yeah, that's very interesting. I, mean, I suppose the, the, one of the key factors here in terms of maybe the sort of the way that things are moving in different directions is of course we've got the uh, the added problems of, of our energy costs in Europe which is obviously to some extent being spurred by by the, the Russian the activities of Russia and Ukraine but um, energy costs uh, are a much bigger story here so you know that's that's I think one of the main reasons that that uh, you know, net deficit net funding needs are are, are not going to fall if anything they're saying they're they're increasing in Europe 
so uh, yeah, it may well be that that that, that becomes a you know a pretty big factor. Um, <clears throat> but in terms of um, just going back to the, to some of my concerns about all that, that um, about how much net uh, net debt we've got to issue, I think the focus is really going to sit on 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 Italy now. At the moment, they're getting extra help. What's, what the ECB is trying to do is take bond redemptions from pandemic QE as they fall due in places like Germany and France and Holland and transfer them onto Italy, uh, helping the Bank of Italy buy more debt and you know, controlling the spread there. Now, that may well be working at the moment. Italian spreads are relatively well behaved at the, uh, currently. But I think the concern is, is that when we get QT, I mean, effectively, if, if we get QT at the sort of pace that I, I was speaking to you about earlier, I mean, that effectively wipes out that help and effectively means that Italy's got to find the buyers of new debt of about 80 billion euros in 2023. And that, that's, that's going to be a tough ask, I think, you know, especially with foreigners at the moment, uh, you know, still selling their holdings and actually increasing that sort of net funding need on Italy. And we just go back to the point that a, what was keeping a, a cap on Italy's Italian spreads and Italian, uh, you know, debt really a, a year ago was very, very low interest rates. So we're talking about up to two-year Italian debt was trading at negative yields. Ten-year Italian debt was trading at about 1%. I mean, that has just been absolutely blown out of the water now. At those previous levels, Italian debt sustainability, the debt trajectory was just about on a falling basis. On these sorts of levels, no matter which way you sort of look at it, uh, they are they are on a, on a rising trajectory going forward uh, into the future, sort of. And we're already at levels which where we weren't a million miles away when Greece had its debt restructured. So I think you know Italy is a, is a big concern. It's, foreigners are worried about it. Clearly, they have been sort of you know leaving the Italian debt market. And I, and I do wonder whether we may well have to actually have that ECB spread tool, this transmission protection tool that we've been talking about, whether that may have to be triggered at some point in 2023. And that, that, that's to say, it may well take a while for it to happen. It may well take sort of that net debt issuance away, but I think that's going to be a concern uh, for, for European markets as we, as we move through the year. So, so what would the market look like? Um, you know, where could spreads get to, say, between Italy and Germany and, and German debt um, for the ECB and other, um, and other regulators to really worry about the sustainability of Italian debt? Well, I think that we're, we're, we are concerned about sustainability anyway. Um, but if, I think personally, when we saw the, the ECB intervene in June and then July, it was aware we saw spreads roughly, roughly pushing out to around the 2.5% mark. Now, we're well below that at the moment. We're actually sort of a little bit below 200 basis points at the moment. But I think if we see spreads pushing out beyond 2.5% again and sort of really sits and staying there, then there's going to be a lot of pressure on somebody to do something. Um, so I think that's, that's, those are the sort of sorts of trigger levels that we're going to look at. I think. And then turning back uh, to, to the UK, so, so you, uh, you know, there's obviously differences in, in the UK and, and, uh, and, and, and Europe. So where do you see the curve going in the UK? You know, we're seeing it today as we record on the 18th day of January, um, we're seeing in the US at least some bull flattening of the yield curve. It looks like in the, the UK, you're seeing something modestly similar, um, uh, three and a quarter percent on, uh, on, on 10 year guilt yields. Um, you know, where, where does the curve go, do you think, in, in the UK as the ECB thinks about uh, stopping its hiking cycle? Yeah, so I think the UK, I mean, the, the one thing that I would point out, we're talking about net issuance needs and QT and everything else, the UK numbers are you know, possibly even worse in some regards because the, the UK is not just doing passive QT, i.e. not rolling bonds over, they're actually selling, uh, selling bonds outright uh, in, into the market. 
and that adds something like, you know, so that roughly, roughly speaking, the, the Office of Budget Responsibility thinks that funding needs uh, over the next five years, uh, over £600 billion. Pounds. Um, passive QT adds about £250 billion pounds to that, but active QT chucks another £200 billion on top. So I think that's definitely going to be you know, helping possibly to keep um, yields, well, certainly yield curves possibly not as flat as they, as they could be either. Uh, yield curves in the UK can go pretty flat. They can, they can invert a long way. Currently, they're only, as, as you say, about 20 basis points uh, in, inverted. You know, I suspect actually, we, you know, we, you know, when we get those that 50 basis point hike in, in February, and probably seeing these, that they'll 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 uh, top out at around four and a quarter. We'll probably see um, two-year yields heading up, possibly back up towards 3.75, 4% again. But I think the 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 ten-year will probably stay around sort of I don't know. I'm thinking more like 25 to to to, to 50 basis points inverted, uh, you know, versus that. But like I say, the, the concern is is that level amount is, is who is going to buy you know, all, all this debt. You add up those, those numbers I just, just read out to you, you add the, the, the net borrowing, passive QT and active QT. Now you're talking about um, next five years needing to find about a trillion pounds of new buyers of, of, of gilts. And you know, I think that, that's something which is going to have the Bank of England very worried and actually just watching about well, how, how those yield curves might react. And it may well be that they would possibly revisit the active uh, element of QT if, if, if they started to see something which maybe sort of, maybe uh, that long end of the gilt, gilt market in particular, starting to you know, price in levels of, of monetary tightening, which they, they, thought, they felt was excessive. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because, uh, you know, the, the active QT sales seem to be having an effect that is much different than what we have in the U.S., where um, where the Fed's balance sheet reduction is being done all passively. And, um, and yes, it's increasing. Issu issuance is going to be higher than it would be if the Fed wasn't doing QT. But at the same time, you still see, you know, twos, tens inverted by 70 basis points. It, it sounds like from what you're saying that that's, uh, it's unlikely that you have the U.K. get in a similar situation. Situation like it may be 25 or 50 basis points, but you're probably not going to see 75 or 80 basis points like we've seen here in the U.S. So, Hugh, any any last uh, last thoughts about your markets here before we turn over to our next segment? Um, yeah, I think I think the other thing possibly I'm I'm got in the back of my mind slightly slightly worries me is about what's going on in Japan. And maybe well, we we do talk about that in your next segment as well. But obviously, this uh, Japan has been a major major um, net buyer of certain elements of European debt, in particular French bonds. Over the last ten years, they they bought over 120 billion euros net of, of French debt. If the Bank of Japan lets its yield curve uh, controls lapse or we go up to one percent or whatever, yeah, that's going to that's going to probably drag in a lot of uh, a lot of Japanese um, bond investors back into their domestic markets and I think you know it might be a, a, a key thing that you know could make things possibly even more difficult for, for Europe in particular if you get Japanese investors starting to sort of you know withdraw from that market as well so I think it's the the Japanese weekly or monthly um, bond flows that we, that we get it's going to be something which people are going to start pouring over all over again so uh, so yeah just just like to mention that really very briefly yeah, so I think that's interesting because I think the initial move will probably be for significantly higher yields, which actually implies that someone at least is selling, right? So, um, and and you've seen you saw that when the uh, Bank of Japan eased its uh, eased its its range from 25 basis points on the 10-year yield to yield curve control at 50 basis points, um, and you know obviously we we've rallied back a little bit today when when the Bank of Japan uh, when Kuroda uh, Governor Kuroda said that they weren't going to. Uh, 
um, that, that he didn't think that they were going to completely get rid of yield curve control. But I agree with you. I think that if the next administration does, if the next uh, group of governors at the Bank of Japan does get rid of yield curve control, you could see significantly higher yields. But but I think as a first order effect, you wind up seeing probably selling of uh, of Japanese debt and, um, and you wind up seeing 10-year yields probably uh, significantly higher than they are today, um, whereas 30-year yields may, might even rally, right? So one of the things that's been going on in Japan is that um, because they've been pegging the 10-year and not pegging the 30-year, the 30-year is where people have sold, and and one of the re- and and that's how they've hedged their interest rate exposure in Japan. So so that's one reason why you have this 110 basis point uh, 10s 30s curve right now. So you could wind up seeing a significant narrowing of that uh, of that yield curve as a first order effect. And the second order effect, like like you say, Hugh, over time, you can wind up seeing um, more of a preference by private investors in particular, maybe to engage in the domestic market instead of going overseas and buying higher yielding debt. Um, so that's that's great. Um, Hugh Worthington, our European uh, our European uh, rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks very much for coming back on Fick Focus. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great fun. Thank you. Thank you. And here we go to our new segment, Interest Rate Intro, with Will Hoffman, our new interest rate associate here in the U.S. Will, what question do you have for me today? Hi, Ira. It spins off what you and Hugh were just talking about. I know you spent quite a bit of time on the ECB and touched just a bit on the BOJ there, uh, as Hugh so politely uh, previewed our, our segment here. But I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the relationship between foreign central banks and the U.S. Treasury market, um, such as how they use treasuries as a tool for their domestic policy goals, as well as how their behavior influences rates here in the U.S. Uh, thanks. Well, um, so th- there's a lot to unpack there. I, th- I think firstly, we have to go to the idea that, you know, central banks um, and, and also other other institutions um, such as Treasury Departments or or the State Agency for Foreign Exchange in, in, uh, in China, the Ministry of Finance in, uh, in Japan, they own bonds for other for reasons other than monetary policy. They, they purchase uh, treasury securities because they have a, a, a current account surplus with the U.S. So they basically, um, as institutions there, sell goods or and services in the U.S., they then receive dollars. And then if they don't want their currency to appreciate significantly, um, the uh, the, the uh, governmental institutions then will hold on to those dollars and uh, and not um, move them back into uh, into local currency thereby strengthening their their, their home currency in doing so they, they need to do something with those dollars other than just hold them in in the form of cash so what they do is they buy uh, treasury securities and treasuries then get a get a big benefit because they wind up having because of the large um, current account surplus uh, that, that those countries have they wind up holding a lot of dollars so you see this in, in Japan and China, each who own you know round numbers around a trillion-ish of of U.S. Treasury debt. Um, although that hasn't gone up significantly over the last couple of, of years, the the but but we have to keep in mind the so central banks that hold foreign exchange reserves and almost every central bank around the world holds foreign exchange reserves uh, in government securities like like U.S. Treasuries or or uh, or gilts or um, uh, or German government bonds, um, they don't 
go out and buy 10-year and 30-year debt. So 10-year and 30-year debt have a lot of risk and they have a lot of interest rate movements. And central banks, if in the event that they decide that they want to defend their currency because they, they want to see their currency appreciate against the dollar because it's falling, they might sell secu- they might sell treasuries and, and they want to sell those treasuries at a price you know near where they purchase them or, or near par at least um, so what they tend to do is buy shorter term debt so they tend to buy treasury bills those are those are securities that mature within a year or two year three year five year kind of debt and um, so, so that's uh, so they tend not to take as much market risk because the shorter the maturity the less duration so that the less sensitive those instruments are for a, a change in price versus a change in yield. And um, so, so central banks tend to hold very much shorter term security. So when people say, oh my goodness, you know, China is going to sell all of its treasury securities, you, you know, they, they, firstly, they probably won't. But if they were to do that, um, they would wind up selling mostly, say, two-year notes and one-year one, one year notes, which don't have a lot of, um, uh, don't have a lot of market risk and market duration risk. So you wouldn't necessarily see 10-year yields, for example, sell off very significantly if in an in an if event like that were to occur um, that being said um, there um, other investors tend to um, tend to buy US Treasury securities and other US dollar dollar assets like corporate bonds um, as portfolio investors just like anyone might in the US. So if there's a pension fund in the US, um, a pension fund in Taiwan or in Germany or in the UK might act very similarly. And if they can buy US denominated assets and either hedge it back or or just buy it outright because they want to hold dollars, then they might do that. But but they'll be more market weight, right? So they'll, they'll wind up buying, um, for example, Taiwanese pensions are famous for purchasing 30-year treasuries or 30-year corporate bonds because they can pick up significant yield compared to their domestic uh, economy and have it be more liquid because their, their market's much smaller. So, so, so there, there's a variety of reasons why, um, why non-US investors purchase uh, treasury securities and others, but we have to keep in mind, to, specifically your question about so foreign central banks, you know, they hold those securities um, you know, more, for, uh, more as a parking place and uh, for, for their dollars than, than owning them for any type of investment reason so they don't take a lot of risk. Uh, with that, we're at time. So on behalf of Will Hoffman and Hugh Worthington, I've been Ira Jersey. If you have any ideas for questions or topics you'd like us to hit on this podcast, please hit us up on the Bloomberg Terminal. You can find all of our research at BI Go on the Bloomberg Terminal. Until next time, be well.